A fan of asking big questions, Christopher Rocchio must have been right at home studying English rhetoric and classics in college. So what could be better than getting a job as a published author or editor of science fiction and fantasy after graduation? How about getting both jobs at the same time? By the time he graduated from college, Christopher had his first traditional book deal and had managed to land a job as an assistant editor at Bain Books. Learn why today's guest believes there's no such thing as a useless degree in writing, as well as how his parents' neutrality around his interests growing up was actually a good thing. Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Freckleton. Have you ever noticed how fear stops us from creating and sharing our best work? Join the Fearless Storyteller as we explore the heart and soul of writing stories, songs, and scripts that sell with the people who write them. Each guest has their own unique hero's journey and insights into the intersections between limiting beliefs and success. This podcast episode is sponsored by me. I'm Ethan Freckleton, a mindset coach for author entrepreneurs. I help author entrepreneurs to achieve a sustainable, flexible, profitable business without all the burnout and overwhelm. Learn more by visiting ethanfreckleton.com forward slash mindset. Christopher Rocchio, welcome to The Fearless Storyteller. Thanks for having me, Ethan. Yeah. So um, for people who may not know who you are, Christopher, what would you like to share about yourself? Uh, yeah. So I, uh, I'm i the author of the Sun Eaters series. It's sort of a science fiction fantasy mashup with Daw Books. They're the folks who publish like Tad Williams, C.J. Cherry, Patch Rothfuss. Uh, it's a series about... Uh, about a guy named Hadrian who lives in this galactic empire in the far future. I like to say he's like uh, Anakin Skywalker if becoming Darth Vader had been his best possible option, which tells you something about the, uh, the bleakness of that universe. Um, it's written like a memoir, and he tells you on page one that he is the, uh, the man who ended this great war between humanity and these aliens. And it's, uh, the story really is about why and how and about all the things that nobody knows. Uh, in addition to that, uh, I also am junior editor at Bain Books. done that for about five, six years now. I'm bad at counting. Um, <laughs> uh, I, English I major, at, are you? Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> through and through. Uh, math got a little hard around ninth grade, and I, I, I just bailed out as uh, as quickly as I could. Seemed to work out. Yeah, uh, I think I'm the only English major uh, from like my my class that I know has an English related job. Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I may be mistaken about that, but I haven't uh, I haven't been keeping up with a lot of them. <laughs> so, why writing? Uh, I. Uh, really couldn't have done anything else, or at least didn't want to do anything else. It, it never really occurred to me not to do it. Hmm. Uh, I've been writing in some form or other since maybe second grade. You know, you used to be one of those kids who's playing make-believe uh, hmm. recess, and then I would go and write down the bit of the story that we just acted out. And as my friends aged up and discovered football and social skills, uh, I just kept making things up. And I don't really remember starting. Hmm. Um and while I might have entertained, like, you know, most kids, I wanted to be an astronaut or, or, or something like that. Uh, the odds of my being an astronaut were uh, astronomic. So uh, I, I ended up giving up on that sometime in middle school um, and, uh, and just kept writing. I, uh, I went to school for English, uh, North Carolina State, and uh, I, I realize now that it was kind of stupid because I hadn't really had a backup plan. And so as I was trying to graduate, I uh, was querying desperately on my first novel, and I was really, really concerned that I was going to uh, you know, finish school and still just be a waiter. Mm -hmm. And I got really lucky, um, or fortunate, or blessed, or whichever word you'd like you know, to use. And I ended up with an agent about a month before I graduated, and I wow. sold the book about, um, about two weeks after. Um, and I, I backed into my, my editorial job by, uh, by interning with them through my last year at, at school. And we had, good, we had someone drop out. Yeah. yeah. Um, so not a lot of publishing jobs, particularly in science fiction or fantasy. Uh, and uh, that one was in North Carolina, of all places, was uh, uh, 
semi-cosmic coincidence. So I've been very, uh, very fortunate in all that. But as I say, I, I never really wanted to do anything except write. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine a lot of things, you know, college is an interesting time of identity and transformation. And it seems like there's a lot of pressure to figure out all of life in that four-year span. Yeah. Well, it's expensive, right? You know, I, I feel like if, uh, if a person is investing, you know, five, six figures of, uh, you know, uh, their future earnings these days uh, into determining what they're going to do for the rest of their life, you know, it, it would behoove someone to get that right. And I just think that that premise is a little bit wrongheaded because... I suspect so. <laughs> most 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 people don't uh, don't figure out what they want to do when they're you know twenty, much less five, and and as early as some of these really crucial decisions have to be made these days. I um, yeah. I got really lucky um, that everything lined up. Um, I wouldn't recommend anyone else uh, try it. My uh, my mother in law is a school teacher. And uh, she's like, do you want to come talk to the kids? And I'm like, that's fine. But you understand I'm going to tell them not to get English degrees like me, right? And she's like, oh, well, uh, we'll see. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, like, I, I remember you clearly had a different experience. But, you know, because it was the easy thing to do. And I live in the Pacific Northwest. I, I went to college, of course, to, you know, do computer science and work at Microsoft and Sure. As it happened, you know, I, I worked a contract, three-month contract at Microsoft over one summer while I was in college, and I realized that uh, most of the people weren't using anything they learned in college. Yeah. For like maybe one or two people out of every 50. And uh, I won't lie, that, that will throw you into a tailspin halfway through college. Yeah, no kidding. Um, I feel bad for some of the interns when I when I lay in on them like this. <laughs> um, but of course, I'm the poster child for that too, because I was a classic student. Just because I like mm -hmm. uh, late antiquity, uh, early and late antiquity, and uh, and the literature and things from those periods, culture and all that stuff. And that's a really hard field to do anything with. But I just was <laughs> like, oh, I can learn about the Persian Empire. Let's do that, because um, that would be fun. And I still still do that of course you know, I, it's an ideal compliment for a writer though yeah well the thing about writing right is that there's there's no there's no such thing as something that's useless uh if yeah. you're trying to tell a story right um you know anything that you encounter you know from history or or, or science or current events uh or you know mathematics architecture whatever field right you can work in somewhere i had uh friend of mine was asking where I learned all the words that I know because, uh, you know, you'll use a word no one's seen before at some point, right? Like, I don't, I don't know. I just keep reading and eventually something will turn up and it'll rattle around in there and hmm. you'll be writing a scene and be like, you know, this would be a really good time to make a point about, uh, you know, flowers or, you know, something random because you just happen to be reading about uh, horticulture, just an article online and it's, like, how do you know so much? Well, I probably don't know any more than anyone else. I just have a place to put the random stuff that I know. Right, right. <laughs> and some structure that you've learned to, to figure out where the pieces can attach. Yeah. 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 So I've been reading your first novel, and uh, you know, obviously you've had a career since then, since you were writing that book and started querying it. Um, you you kind of get into all the big questions right was that your first novel um well not technically but also this is a, you know the meme well yes but also no um uh, there's an I, i've been writing some version of that story what became empire of silence since i was a kid mm. and when i was a kid it resembled it in in no way uh it was a uh a sort of fantasy novel that had elves in it and it was and now it's a science fiction novel that's set in the far future there's not an elf to be seen um but there's it's hard for me to know at what point uh the story that i i, I have written that i published uh became enough uh that final story and stopped being any of the earlier things so there are earlier versions that in no way resemble Empire Silence that exist. Maybe yeah. two or three distinct finished manuscripts over the course of my growing up. Um, but when I sold it uh, 22, I, it, 
uh, it's, I still hadn't really, I hadn't published anything. Um, and what I had written before that was just totally weird, disconnected, different drafts of what would become that. So it's hard Mm. for me to answer definitively. Well, and I I bring it up because, well, it sounds like perhaps you've had a, um, a uniquely, um, I would almost say blessed childhood in the sense that a lot of people, I think, uh, have that creativity. They don't start doing something, they stop being creative, right? Mm. And it sounds like you didn't really have that, uh, whatever it was that, that, that gets into the brain that makes us stop being willing I, to take chances. And I bring that up because a lot of people would stop if they were writing a book like that, they'd just rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it or put it in the shelf for years, right? That like the big magnum opus book. Mm -hmm. And so like, did you struggle with it? Like what comes up doing, doing that kind of work? I am. I I think part of it is I didn't stop because nobody suggested that I should. Mm. Um, Like, like you know, the the stereotypical ones. You know, you've got your 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 parents are like, well, you might as well think about getting a real job. And my parents never like encouraged me to keep writing Mm. um, because I, you know, telling your kid to be an artist is maybe not the most prudent, you know, life decision. Uh, And parents, you know, want you to you know, you know, be, be stable and, and, and successful, but they never told me not to do it or that it was bad for me or that I might consider doing something air quotes real. Um, but, uh, but, but like I said, they didn't stop me. They didn't really encourage me in that, in that either. And I think that kind of neutrality was actually really helpful. And, and I, and not to make it sound like my parents weren't unsupportive. The, the instant I sold the damn thing, um, my dad was like, Oh, tell me all about it. Like he was totally behind it now that I had, you know, a contract and, and a uh, trajectory with it. Um, so I think that that sort of neutrality was really helpful because no one told me I couldn't do it. Um, and, uh, I also, the other side of it too, is, is that I was one of those like quiet kids who was in the back of the class and, and didn't have a lot of, uh, didn't have a lot of friends. You know, like I said, most of them moved on to being more, you know, again, air quotes, normal kids. They, you know, developed interest in sports and and parties and social life. And I was Mm -hmm. never that guy. Um, I would just sit in the back of class. And if it wasn't a class that I liked, you know, we were picking on math, I think uh, earlier, uh, I would just keep, writing, uh, you know, world building notes or, or thinking about things on the back of my worksheets and whatnot. And, and, and nobody ever told me to stop. And I never really asked anyone how to do it either. I was never one of those, like how to write people. I didn't have a lot of friends who were writers or anything like that growing up. It's weird now having so many friends who are writers, cause it's so different from my earlier experience that I was, I was just doing a lot of this in a vacuum. And, um, and so I didn't know that maybe most writers might decide that this project was done and they should cut it and move to something else. Cause my model was, was Tolkien as I think uh, he is for so many. Um, and he just would kept keep working on his world building project, right? His myth building project his whole life. And he did that in the trenches of the Psalm. And if he could do it under those conditions, I could do it in the back of the classroom. Sure. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm, not claiming to be anywhere near that level, but I just assumed that what you had to do was, was keep plugging along and, and, and working on the same thing until it was ready. Mm. Um, which is, you know, not how everyone, how everyone goes about it. Right. And if you weren't, didn't have that pressure of graduating and needing to quote unquote, get a job, like, would you have been ready? Would that book Uh, have been ready? Yeah. Um, I think, I think I got there just in time. I, I, Remember sometime, I think, in sophomore or junior year, I and this maybe is where that clear line of division between the, the pre-Empire versions of Empire of Silence and the published version is drawn. Uh, I remember somewhere in that, that window, I was like, all right, I'm going to reconsider a couple things. Uh, I think that's when I changed it from third person to first person, for mm-hmm. instance. And I'm going to actually do this. Um, I'd done a lot of dress rehearsals. Um, um, but I decided that now was the time. And so I finished that maybe March and I graduated in December. And I think I spent 
what's that? Uh, again, I can't count, but the, whatever the months between that and November, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's embarrassing. <laughs> I really can't count. Um, the, uh, I, I spent the rest of that year sending out query letters and I sent out maybe 52, 53, something like that. It's a good you know, number. All that, Time, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's not a fun number. No. I remember doing, I was doing the Stephen King thing where I was papering my wall with the rejection letters. Oh, and nice. after about 10, I was like, this is going to kill me. All right, these are coming down. Um, and so I just did that. And, and I was really hoping maybe everything would come together at exactly, um, exactly the right time. And I, uh, and everything did, um, you know, with, uh, with the whole querying process, which is it, dismal and and uh demoralizing process mm. um but uh you know I had, I had to graduate in the same window and find a job and, and a bunch of other things so you had other things to focus on besides besides rejection yeah it helped um yeah <laughs> so <laughs> so you get you get an agent yeah and what happens then um so we, uh, I signed on with the agent in late November. That was, I think, 2015. Yeah, 2015 I graduated. And uh, she told me, look, basically publishing is going out to lunch for the next month anyway, which is true. Traditional publishing, uh, like many industries, right? People just, they leave for the holidays. Yeah, there's a dead zone. <laughs> yeah, there's just no work getting done. Yeah. So she's like, why don't you uh, take this next month and do a couple edits? Uh, my agent, Shauna, was uh, editor of Asimov Science Fiction Magazine for like uh-huh. uh, four years, I think, in the 80s. Nice. Uh, so she's an editor too. And she's like, all right, I got some notes for you. So I did those tweaks. I got like 20,000 words out of it over the break. And then uh, New Year hit and, you know, New Year, new book, let's go. Um, she started, uh, rattling all the publishers in their cages, uh, trying to get, uh, try to drum some interest and we got a few on the line and you do the thing, right. Where you try to play one off one another. Yeah. But, uh, before we really could get into any of that, uh, Daw books came along with a really good offer. Um, they would buy the whole series. They know they were going to take hardcover hmm. and that was really, really hard to argue with. So we, uh, we just snapped it up. Um, one of the publishers, of course, that didn't get me was my employer, uh, which has been a little bit, uh, a little bit entertaining ever since. Uh, uh, Bain's been very supportive. Yeah, you know, we go to that's conventions. Probably, that's probably a healthy, a healthy balance. Yeah, I think so too. That there, there's a, a real case to be made for keeping that sort of thing separate, yeah. um, just so that one person's not breathing down your neck, uh, you know, about your book while you're literally at your desk, and you know, you know about that deadline. Yeah, well, do you want me to, uh, no, not do all this promo stuff for the other writers? Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, it's like um, two different brains, I imagine. Yeah, yeah um, I've literally, I've been to conventions with two badges because we'll uh, we'll buy a bunch of badges for staff, right, so mm. that we can get into the the dealers' rooms and whatnot. Um, but then I'll have gotten one from the convention as a guest. So depending on which door I need to go through, I'll swap them out, which is always really entertaining for me, but it, you know, <laughs> you have like special glasses to put on for one of the roles. I should do that or comb my hair the other way. Yeah. Um, just yeah. mess with people next time. The old Christopher Reeves thing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like, like this relationship with Shauna, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious to to know more like sure going into it like like why you think she chose you or how that early engagement went of building trust and feeling like that was going to be a good relationship yeah um so of those 52 queries i sent out i think only two no three came back uh in anything but the uh the the negative right if they came back at all because yeah. a lot of agents will just tell you if you don't hear it assume it's a no which means that they just mass deleted your email monday morning when they came into the office mm-hmm. um, because they're not that hungry um but uh the other two, one represented my my college professor, uh, John Kessel, and he looked at my stuff basically as a favor to John, which is very kind of John to do. Hmm. Um, he's a Nebula uh, winning science fiction writer himself. So I, nice, I, I got lucky nice. to have a college yeah. professor who liked science fiction because there are not a lot of them. Hmm. Um which is a whole nother conversation. Uh, and then the other one just, you know, did a partial look and said, no. Um, but Shauna, I, uh, I was getting towards the end of this list that I had, right. Cause you know, you can go and you can go find lists of agents, places like query tracker, 
you know, stuff like that. Yeah. I was getting towards the end and I was starting to freak out, right? Cause graduation was coming. So I, I sent her a letter, um, you know, and, uh, maybe three hours later, she emailed me back and said, send me the first couple chapters. And then uh, dinner time that night, she was like, send me the whole thing. So that was all a really good sign uh, compared to the great, you know, uh, uh, SETI style radio silence from all the <laughs> other ones. And uh, I think by the end of that week, she signed me on and we were talking about getting everything squared away. She, of course, read everything and did those uh, that editorial pass. Hmm. Um, my impression is that agents acting as editors like that is not super common. Hmm. Um, I haven't spoken to a lot of other writers about what their experience with agents um, is like. I, I know a couple who've talked about um, doing some, some revisions, uh, but sometimes it sounds more like, you know, very specific spot revisions, but Shauna gave me line edits, which was a real boon. Um, and, uh, was that challenging to, to get that? Like, like, uh, did it put pressure on like, maybe if I don't do this or figure this out, like this isn't going to work. Oh no. Um, is it? I, especially early on, uh, I was willing to basically take whatever critiques, uh, were necessary to get the thing done. Um, cause one thing that people don't talk about with revisions, right. Is that it is, it is kind of a back and forth process. You, you do get a say obviously in, in, in what's going on, but you can also, when people say, Hey, change this scene so that, you know, this other thing happens, you can make that thing happen, but you've got a very, you've got like an infinite latitude in how you, you make that happen. So mm. if you get a, a change that you're not super thrilled about, it usually behooves you to take the advice anyway and try to find a way to incorporate that advice that makes you still happy and comfortable. So when editors or or Shauna in this case, my agent, uh, give me um, give me revision notes that I'm not super thrilled about, they mm -hmm. are at minimum an opportunity to um, grow the book right in some way. Um, and so even if you're not thrilled about the way that they framed, you know, I think Darth Vader should be his dad. And you're like, I really wanted Anakin to be a different person. Right, right. Um, you can kind of find a way to massage the change if you sit down and think about it that makes you happy, but also satisfies the editorial uh, perspective as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's it's not ever like you're given a list of things and you must do them and they must be executed in this way because prose is a very complicated, you know, articulated medium. And there are so many different ways that you can, that you can have things uh, play out. Yeah. Even if you're given um, a relatively prescribed list of changes, you can, you can still, as I say, you've got like nearly infinite latitude in how you carry those things out. Yeah. And so whenever I'm I'm given something, I'm like, I don't know about that, or that I think is totally off base, rather than argue as a rule, I, I, I try and find a way to adopt the spirit of the critique um, and not the letter, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. I'm struggling to think of a specific example, but it it, it is often the case too that uh, when the editor goes and reads this sort of this sort of revision, right, and they see the thing they wanted, they're like, "Oh, cool!" And then they, they you know, they don't that the secondary considerations that you might have like used to were put in to modulate um, the the change so that you're comfortable with it might not be even something they see, right? Yeah. So it's still it's still your book. You're still in control. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's a, a little bit of politicking involved there. Back so I imagine some of this nuance and awareness of stuff you developed as you interned and then worked at yeah. Bain. And I imagine that's a helpful perspective to, to have when you're inserting yourself into the writing process and dealing with other editors. Yeah. The, um, I think the best thing about having worked for Bain while starting out as a writer is that I, I do get to see both sides. And I think that humanizes uh, both halves of the publisher-author um, relationship. I know a lot of the more uh, – a lot of the indie writers I know are very skeptical of traditional publishing. Mm -hmm. They don't like the idea of other people um, – you know, getting their fingers in their ideas and telling them what to do. And, and as, uh, you know, uh, 
holding their money hostage in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and their and their you know careers to a certain extent. But it's, I mean, it's a reciprocal relationship, right? You know, both the publisher and the author make make money off of one another, and they, mm-hmm. you know, it, it brings prestige to both. Uh, publishers to have certain writers, you know, be they famous ones or uh, rising stars or whatever, but it also brings a certain note of prestige to the writer too, to be published by certain institutions and everybody can win, right? It's not a combative relationship Mm. necessarily, um, but it's, it's hard sometimes to remember that the person at the other end of the email account is a person. Mm. And so seeing what like publishing office dynamics and politics are like, um, really helps like t- to answer questions like, why haven't they emailed me back? It's been a week. Do mm-hmm. they hate me? Is my book on the chopping block? What is going on? And you know, oh no, they just, publishing is slow sometimes. You know, they probably are waiting for a response from someone at the printing office right. or, you know, the cover designer is a freelancer who lives on the other side of the planet and they haven't heard back from that person. Or, you know, Jane is out because... You know, she's got a medical thing and just won't be in for a couple of weeks and didn't set her email reminders because people do that sometimes. And when it's a faceless, you know, mechanism that lives in New York and spits your books out, um, it's hard to keep in mind the fact that those are people, too. And so being around those people and seeing authors be frustrated with publishers and publishers frustrated with authors has helped me sort of find ways to to try really hard not to be that writer mm-hmm. um, and, and, and to not be that editor either when I work with, when I work with writers. Um, yeah. So I like, will always answer emails, even if it's just, I don't know, I need to talk to this person um, and I will get back to you as soon as I can. If you haven't heard from me by X, email me again, just so that they know that, you know, someone's there and that it didn't go to spam. Yeah. That's, that's an advanced skill that I appreciate and that, that doesn't always come early in a career. The idea of communicating to manage expectations, not necessarily to produce, you know, <laughs> the final An answer, answer yeah. right? Just to maintain that relationship. Yeah, no, it's Across. it's hard to uh, to remember that other people are human, um, especially yeah. over the computer. Um, well, in writing, I imagine, like. You know, you, you prepare to write, you learn the craft of writing. It's not necessarily preparing you to plug into a bureaucratic entity that that has many layers to it that oh, no. people may have never been inside. Yeah, or, or to market for that matter. Um, yeah. Writers, uh, writing is by its nature a, a pretty solitary profession. Um, I can't, uh, I can't even write if another person that I know is in the room, right? Like mm-hmm. my, uh, my wife was asking me, you know, gonna, can I like, you know, set up a desk in the corner of your office? Cause we've only got the one, uh, the one office right now in the house, mm-hmm. um, you know, upstairs isn't finished yet. And I was like, if you do that, you know, it's not that I don't love you, but I really won't be able to work. Um, because I need to like think out loud and talk to myself and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Dear, I, if you're here, I want to talk to you because, you know, I love you and talking to you is nice. Um, you know, so, so that really clashes with the sort of uh, uh, world of, well, with the, with the bureaucracy of publishing, but also with the world of other writers, right? And, and the world of uh, relating to readers and things like that. Mm. Um, it's, I, I don't want to say writing is an antisocial profession, but it's certainly not a pro-social one and so the the skills of being a writer as as a a you know a very small scale celebrity again air quotes are totally anathema to the skills of being a writer as a craftsman mm-hmm. um and and it's difficult to be both and i think a lot of people are good at one or the other and i don't know which uh, uh, you know i i would rather be good at the writing than the than the relating but it's um it's it's very often the case that someone who is uh, who spends all their time at a desk by themselves talking to themselves in some form or other is um, you know will have trouble with things like that um, especially like the imposter syndrome anxiety stuff mm-hmm. um, I think is a consequence of spending so much time in one's own head because when you're imagining fictional characters right you're imagining what other people think 
And it's not so different from imagining the fictional constructs of the real people that you work with but don't know very well mm-hmm. and what they might be thinking. And I think that people tend to run in that direction and it freaks them out, um, mm. if that makes sense. It does to me, um, you know, and whether, <laughs> whether it makes sense to his listening, I suppose, is contextual. But you mentioned the word imposter syndrome. I'm curious what that means to you. Oh. That's, that's one that's thrown about a lot. Yeah, I, I, I think it's – well, I'm, I'm relating it in this context to the um, – the idea that that writers, I think, feel like they don't deserve whatever success they're having. And I think this is true of like all sorts of professions, not just mm-hmm. writers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but especially ones that are forward-facing, right? You know, you have something of a reputation. You're if if a, a very far from uh, you know super famous uh, public figure, still some kind of public figure, right? You know, there are exceptions, right? Stephen King is like a real A-list celebrity. George Martin is, but most people have no clue who. Uh, who I am, but there are a few people who know and pay attention, things like that. And you know, you get compliments from other people, like I really like your work, and and it's like, really, how do you even know about it? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, right, there's a book out. Um, and this, I think, it leads to this sense that you don't deserve any of that, mm-hmm. um, and that. I think can in some cases lead to this sense of paranoia, like we were talking about, like, does my publisher like me? Um, you know, am, uh, uh, are they still happy to work with me? Am I on the ropes? All these things, because fundamentally you feel like, Oh, I haven't done anything to earn my position. All I've done is write these books. Um, and that sense, uh, that whatever you have is somehow, um, you know, arbitrary or detached from your accomplishments, I think is what it means to me. Hmm. Um, but that's obviously not the, not the reality. If you've written a book and, and people are buying it and, and publishers are willing to pay for it or, or readers directly, if you're an indie writer, right. Then you've obviously earned as much as, as much as you've earned so far. And that's great. Um, even, you know, be that a million people or, you know, a thousand or 10, right. Um, is is fundamentally um there's no way of knowing what kind of impact you're going to have right mm-hmm. um and if one person reads your book and that one person uh you know it, it meant the world to them and it really like helped them in a bad place then it was worth writing um however much money you may make um mm-hmm. you know and so even that apparently small inconsequential you know uh achievement you know one person liked it um, a lot is hugely consequential to that one person. And so whatever yeah. you've done really matters. Um, yeah. and whether so, or not there's, whether or not there's a feedback loop for you to know that. Yeah. Yeah. You may never even know about it either. Right. Like I, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a, uh, theology scholar and he was telling me that nothing that any of the people in that field uh, write today is going to be read in a thousand years, right? Yeah. Because it's not clear that anyone who's uh, is a Catholic theologian, anyone who's writing today is going to be as impactful as Augustine was in the 400s, right? Or, mm. or something like that. So they've got like all their giants sort of mapped already. And that's true with fiction too, to an extent, right? Like, it's not clear to me that anyone who's writing now is going to have the long reaching impact of uh, of Lord of the Rings. I'm not even personally convinced that Harry Potter is going to make it a hundred years just cause I, uh, I, I just don't know. I, I, I see a lot of the younger generation kind of like moving on to different things. I think, uh, whatever created the, the sort of Harry Potter reading generation hasn't mm-hmm. really translated to the next wave of young readers. And maybe I'm mistaken. Um, but I have a feeling and, and that's uh, that it just might not make it so long. And, um, and so I, I just, I have no way, uh, we have no way of knowing. And my, my friend, the theologian, uh, was saying, you know, no one's going to read, uh, no one's going to read what I'm writing ever. And like, well, man, you don't know that, right? Like some, uh, ancient English scholar in 4,000 years might read your paper by pure chance. And it might revolutionize some field of thinking if only archeology, span uh, in, uh, in, in 5,000 years. Um, we have receipts from a, I think it's a beer merchant in ancient Sumer, uh, and, and who was, uh, I forget his name, but he was like a bad businessman. He was cheating people 
on uh, trade weights with beer and stuff. We have receipts about him being a a a, a bad faith, you know, uh, beer trader, mm-hmm. and that was one of the like uh, documents that helped us really crack Sumerian or Akkadian or whichever language it was. Um, and so that dude's being a bad beer seller had huge reach, <laughs> uh, far reaching ramifications for scholarship years later. So it just, you know, it contextualizes um, our time, right? Yeah. And I think, I think fundamentally that no one really is an imposter because it's impossible to know, uh, what your impact is going to be. And so you should just assume that it's going to be, that it might be, um, you know, meaningful because yeah. it will be to someone. But I think that that still plagues a lot of writers. You know, they, they feel like what they're doing is, is, um, you know, stupid. Like I was saying earlier, talking about real jobs, right? Yeah. You know, why don't you go, go do stuff like that? And the answer is you can do stuff like that too. Writing doesn't need to take up your whole life. Yeah. Um, and that's okay. That's so. true. And I imagine there's another angle to it. Um, which is if you're st- if you're writing to create work that um, is trying to emulate something else or be what you hope somebody else wants it to be. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, if you try to put on someone else's face in a way, then you are, I guess, you know, literally an imposter. You know, you know, I I, I get a. Uh, accused of being too much like Frank Herbert from time to time, you know, mm-hmm. guy wrote Dune. Um, and it's certainly the case that Frank Herbert was a huge inspiration. Um, and very often I'll go read a review and, and someone will think that that's all that I've done, right? And I have reasons for trying to write stuff like Dune. I have questions about Dune that I don't think Dune answered and I wanted to interrogate, mm-hmm. you know, in 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 narrative form because that's if that's what I do, right, if I'm going to be a, a, a fiction writer and I want to respond to other works of fiction, then bringing in elements from those things I want to respond to is is necessary to an extent, right? Um, but there are some people who don't see past the references. And so I, I can read an otherwise positive review that will mention this mere fact and it will plug into all the other people who have mentioned that fact before, um, you know, the, the, the Dune homages. And it will make me feel like I should just stop doing what I'm doing Mm. Um, because look at all these people who don't get it. It's not working. Right. But then there are a bunch of other people who get it. And and so it's really hard because you want to, you want to read reviews and get feedback because you especially want to hear the people um, who liked it. And you really want to hear from the people who it was good for. Right. You know, I, I I had an email from one of my readers who um, got thrown out of his apartment by his uh his boyfriend if i remember rightly mm. um and he had nowhere to go and all he had was his, was a copy of my book in his backpack still in you know school supplies he's a university student i think and um and it helped him get through that bad week while he was trying to figure stuff out and like that is what i would like you know my work to be for is just yeah. for people who need something um when they're in a bad place because god knows the world's hard enough um and if I could give someone something that takes them out of it for a few hours, then, you know, mission accomplished. Um, and if a bunch of other people don't like it, um, you know, uh, because it's in this case, you know, too much like Dune, um, whatever the reason may be, um, then I guess too bad for them because I was trying to help that guy. Um, yeah. You know, I just wanted to entertain the people who want to be entertained by it, especially if they need it. Yeah. Um, and I imagine you were entertaining yourself at some point too, or learning something by doing yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're writing something that's not fun for you, you should definitely not be writing it. Um, because if it's, if it's lifeless and stale for you, it's really going to be terrible for everybody else. Yeah. Um, so I guess that putting on your editor hat then, mm-hmm. right. And having been in the industry on that side of things, I imagine, right. Like, people may have perceptions about the stories they can and can't write for commercial success. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what that looks like. The truth of that in 2020, as we head in to another decade. You're talking about like stories that just editors don't think are commercial. 
Yeah, um, or like or, people, you know, people may have perceptions. I need, you know, I see this person succeeding. I see Christopher Rocchio succeeding doing this. Maybe that's what I need to be writing. Our editors are only publishing this kind of story. So that's what I need to be writing. Yeah, I, I have a deep-seated suspicion that traditional publishers, um, publishers in general, don't actually know what makes a book a success. I think that uh, Harry Potter, for instance, right, was so disproportionate to any marketing budget, right, in terms of, of just how huge that franchise became, mm-hmm. that there was no amount of investment they could have made that could have made it as huge as it is, right? There's this sort of idea that if you throw enough money behind marketing uh, a book, you can make it a success. Yeah. Maybe that's true in certain cases, but I don't think that you can make J.K. Rowling J.K. Rowling just by throwing money at things. Right. Um, and I think that there's a real tendency as a consequence of this, that whenever something big happens, and I think this is very apparent in young adult literature, mm. um, but the tendency is just to copy that fad um, until it burns out. Like, look at the dystopian thing we went through yeah, yeah. in the last decade, right? Uh, I may be mistaken in thinking that the Hunger Games kicked that off. I've never been a very attentive um, YA uh, fan. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly the case that post-Hunger Games, you had a slew of other writers who were in that vein who may not have achieved the same, you know, um, Olympian heights of success as Susan Collins. Um, they, but kind of create, very... they kind of create markets, right? Yeah. Or, or at least identify that there is one. Yeah. Um, once they've found that, they know, hey, we can get some, you know, moderate to large successes by sort of continuing in this vein for a little while. And then mm. when that fad dies out, inevitably they'll have stumbled into some other uh, titanic success. Mm-hmm. And then we've got our new thing, right? Before mm-hmm. it was the dystopian, it was the paranormal romance stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then before that, it was basically Harry Potter's times, um, yeah. you know. Uh, and I think that's true in, in every genre. There, there's whatever flavor of the, the decade, the year, the week, whatever time frame it is. And we, when we sort of keep pushing on that until we've, uh, we've moved on as a culture. Um, you know, you can see this in other media too. I think superhero movies have finally started to reach their, their peak. Um, mm. Of course, the film industry has got other problems right now. Um, you know, theaters not being open and all. But... Uh, you know, I, I saw a lot of the enthusiasm for the MCU films starting to taper off right after Endgame. They're like, oh, yeah, Spider-Man, great. Uh, who's next? Uh, where's Robert Downey Jr.? Right, he's dead, um, you know. Um, and so I don't know if the enthusiasm is going to stick around because I don't – as much as I like Batman, I don't see people lining up for the DC films in the same way. Mm. Um, and I think the fatigue is setting in, and I think fatigue sets in on any wave and that publishing just sort of waits for something to hit big and then and then pushes on it. Um, because I think editors fundamentally like stories. Um, and they're and most of the editors that I know uh, at Bain or at other houses are willing to give basically anything a try as long as it's executed well. They might have, you know, their their personal their personal tastes. My boss likes hard science fiction stories, right? Mm. You're sort I mean, of that's just, an important thing, right? Yeah, um, and so you need to know who you're pitching to, right? If you're if an agent that you're pitching to says, "I don't do urban fantasy," don't bother that agent with your urban fantasy, right? Um, because I think a lot of the submissions process is sort of a litmus test for people who can read uh, and follow instructions. Uh, yeah. And, you know, we, we get uh, submissions in, in Bain all the time for stage plays and books of poetry and memoirs. And like, guys, it says on the website, we just do science fiction, fantasy, maybe a techno thriller, maybe, mm-hmm. um, you know. Um, and so it, it behooves you to, to, to try and know the market, right, in the sense of the editor as market. But once you've got an editor um, who's willing to take a look at the thing you have because it sounds interesting to them, they're basically willing to give, like, all the shades of those things a shot, right? Yeah. I don't know an editor who's going to be, like, really specific. They're like, oh, I like hard science fiction, uh, but if it, you know, doesn't hit, you know uh, – all 97 of these buttons, I'm not getting it. Like it can hit maybe 50 of them and they're, and they're in. Right. Um, I, I've worked, you know, especially if you inherit authors from other editors, right. So if you're, you're working with an established series, um, 
you don't want to try and make it something that it hasn't been. Mm. Um, and so the, the role of a good editor, um, always, um, but especially with, with, uh, writers that have been around longer than they have been is to try and make that author the best version of themselves they can be. Um, of course it's, it's good, right. If, if it's something that that editor is into, but like I've edited urban fantasy manuscripts and not to pick on it, that's not really my thing. Um, but that doesn't mean that I, you know, I'm going to sort of, or, you know, shuffle off the work, um, because I don't, I don't like it. It's, you know, it, it is, it is a job and, um, you know, you can still make that urban fantasy book, the best urban fantasy book it can be, right. um, without trying to make that author into someone that they're not. Um, so I don't think that on principle, there's a story that's unsellable. It's just a question of how sellable it is. Right. And well, it might be unsellable if the execution is bad, right? Yeah. But if you've got an idea and you can make the idea work, editors will give that consideration unless it's just not their flavor of ice cream. Mm. Um, you know, in which case, find another publisher to pitch to. That's that's not yeah. the end of the world. One of the cool things about the independent publishing landscape is that, you know, because there isn't the gatekeeper and the budgets, people can experiment and kind of find out, you know, where smaller audiences are and what works and what might be viable, right? Do Oh, totally. Does the in your awareness, does the industry pay attention to kind of unexpected things that come up? Yeah, no, totally. We're always looking to see what's going on over there just cuz I mean, Amazon in particular at, at like an institutional level represents a, a, a serious challenge uh, to, to traditional publishing. Mm. Um, and everyone takes that seriously. Mm. I do think that um, traditional publishing and, and indie publishing are, are, it, are doing different things on a pretty fundamental level. And part of that is what, what you're talking about. I think uh, with indie writing, you can target um, very narrow deep audiences right and so if you want to write um say uh, uh lit rpg which is uh, extremely successful um mm -hmm. you know huge huge genre that i don't know of any like traditionally published lit rpg books maybe they're starting to come out now mm -hmm. um but if you can go and, and throw out a dozen of those you know and, and indie books very often are shorter than traditional uh, mm -hmm. and published books as well. And if you can get those out quickly and, and, and catch on to that sort of uh, very precise targeted demographic, then you can do great, right? And I don't think that traditional publishing can do that because of the overhead cost. I think mm -hmm. that they have an interest in trying to uh, reach as large an audience as possible as opposed to as narrow and deep a one as possible. Because mm. those people who read those literary PG books, they'll, you know, that's their thing, right? They'll read you know, a hundred of them if they can get their hands on them. And when they're only a dollar or two a piece or yeah. free, you know, Kindle Unlimited, you know, they can, they can have everything they want. I, um, I like to liken it to, uh, to heavy metal music. I'm a big metal fan mm -hmm. and, um, don't know how much you know about that, but there's like a billion, uh, fractionated little subgenres and they're right. mutually, uh, you know, estranged from one another. They, you know, I try to explain to someone who's not, and I'm like, all right, this is black metal. And this is power metal. Like mm -hmm. it still sounds loud to me. <laughs> like no, no, they're completely different, and I don't like this one. Different ones. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but you'll you'll find people in the metal community who will only listen to black metal, right? Or yeah. they'll only listen to neoclassical metal or whatever the heck. Right. And it's indecipherable to people who have no investment in in the art form, right? In the same way that people are like. Uh, you know, oh, science fiction books that like the ones with the the the, the broomsticks. Mm -hmm. um, like, no, that's that's different. Uh, that fantasy is a different thing. And especially if you get with uh, the really small genres, trying to distinguish, you know, urban fantasy from historical fantasy, right? Uh, depending on uh, or from uh, epic fantasy, depending on the nature of the specific title, right? If you've got a, a fantasy that's set in 1750s Boston, is that urban fantasy mm. uh, or is it historical? Is it even epic fantasy? It's hard to tell. And in the same way that it's hard to tell, hey, is that black metal? Uh, and I think, um, I think that indie publishing accomplishes um, the sort of micro-targeting of audience interest in a way that, that traditional publishing just can't. Mm. 
Yeah. Um, especially because it's so fast and reactive too, right? Yeah. If you're an indie writer, you could put stuff out. Um, you could finish the book and put it out for sale on the same day, yeah. right? You cannot do that with traditional publishing because uh, yeah. we've got to print them, yeah. um, you know. Well, and so if I'm putting on my author hat and say I'm a mid-career author and I have an awareness of both markets to some degree, right? Mm -hmm. am, am I thinking about this as like a portfolio activity? Like, you know, this story that I'm going to write might be appropriate for me to self-publish in this one. You know, like maybe there's a way I should be thinking about traditional publishers when that's an appropriate thing to actually think about to diversify my writing business. Yeah, I absolutely think it's like that. I um I wrote uh a short novel about fifty thousand words, uh, which of course traditional publishers won't take. It's too short. Mm -hmm. Um and there are all sorts of reasons for that. Um at least in, in adult science fiction that's too short for uh you know middle grade that's no problem. Mm -hmm. Um there are all sorts of, of reasons that publishers have these rules, but it's very uncommon to see an adult SF book uh, shorter than 80,000 words. And I wrote it that long because I have an option on my contract that my publisher gets to look at uh, whatever I do next that's novel length. Mm. And I can't do anything until they make a decision. And so I thought, hey, I'll write something shorter. Uh, um, and that was, was way, 80, not 000, only... Is 80,000 the clause in, in that yeah. contract? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's, it's not enumerated by, by word count precisely. But it's novel length. And, of course, I talked to them about this, right? Because, yeah. you know, go back to what we're saying. I'm not going to do anything to blindside them because you run the risk of alienating the uh, the people that you're, you know, working with. If, mm. you, if you're if you not a clear communicator, you should right. always be as honest and forthright as possible um, just as a matter of course. Uh, you know, I, I try to, you know, do that in all things, but in, mm -hmm. in business in particular. Um because you don't want your, your publisher or your editor's ego bruised because you did give them a chance to buy something from you, yeah. if, especially if they really like your work and it's selling. Um, but I did that so that I could put something out at the indie level because I wanted to have a, uh, a bit of work available that wasn't $13, $15. Um, because, because so many readers are uh, looking for uh, indie titles, right? They're, you know, they're, be they, be they K, uh, KU readers, right? Or, or mm -hmm. reading Kindle Unlimited, or they, uh, they're just used to spending a dollar or two on books these days. Cause that's just what the, the market's like. They might be willing to risk two, three bucks on me as a writer they've never encountered before, but they would never drop 30 bucks on a hardcover anymore. Um, cause that's just not the world they live in. And so I try to think about it as, as putting as many doors as possible into my library. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the traditional publishing puts me uh, on shelves. Um, and I really do think that bookstores still work. I, I don't think that my publisher did anything to market the mass market release of empire of silence, but it, um, it had it, a channel anyways, right? Yeah, it did really, really well when it uh, came out in mass market. It did uh, better than the initial hardcover sale, um, and it uh, it's sold thousands of copies now, um, which, again, w without any marketing that I was aware of. Um, and I think that's just because people are in the stores looking around, yeah. and they're like, oh, this book has a cool cover. Let me check it out. And once they hold the book right, the odds they're going to buy it goes way up. Yeah, and um, there's kind of these roads that are kind of built over time, right? And mm. I see indie publishers doing the same thing. Like you mentioned Lit RPG and one of them, Mountaindale Press, which is Dakota Kraut's business. Um, mm -hmm. They've collected enough, you know, they've been building enough road that when they release a title, they already have these roads, this channel established where people, there's enough mass there, right? And a trad publisher is something that's been doing that over a much longer period of time so there's more roads i would imagine and infrastructure and just previous successes that have paved the way for the next thing to come right yeah and even if it's not for the author in question right it's like when uh, publishing's got three seasons so every every four months uh, everyone sits down and plans their strategy again right um and when they do that they'll be like look we're bringing out john smith's new book here uh, what has he published before? And so they'll look at the books that are still available in the warehouse that were maybe earlier in the series, earlier titles, mm -hmm. 
and they'll go to the Salesforce, and the Salesforce will talk to Barnes and Noble, will talk to um, to Amazon or or to Books a Million or to the indie bookstores or wherever, and be like, look. Uh, this new title is coming out. Why don't we get some of this backlist in stock? And they'll go ahead and reshape all that. So all those business relationships are designed to get those books in front of people because, as I say, the experience is still standing in that aisle. Mm-hmm. Um, and seeing a book that looks interesting, I think, is actually still a vital book-selling um, warfront. Yeah. Um, and so one of the reasons, I think, to still want to be traditionally published is – um, as voracious as the, um, the sort of deeply invested, um, uh, omnivorous, you know, Amazon reader is, there's a whole bunch of casual readers, right, who will only read because they just happen to wander into a bookstore on their way out of the mall, and they're like, you know what, it's that time. Yeah. Um, and you're never going to catch that person because they're going on Amazon to buy socks. They're not, they're not going on Amazon to get books. Right. Um, and um, and so it, it behooves you, as I say, to have as many doors into your library as possible. Um, but that's but in reverse, that's why I went and did the the Amazon title. I thought, hey, if I can get something in front of the Amazon audience, maybe I can make more readers for my traditionally published books too, because they'll like my name. Because you know, your name as an author is your brand, right? Um, and so, if you can create products for all uh, some of those different markets. Um, it's still, you know, I'm still writing the same genre, the same universe, the same basic story, right? But yeah. di- different, uh, different products, right? You know, um, potentially you know, an on ramp to your newsletter yeah. if you have one. And that kind yeah, of exactly. And then once you've got someone in your newsletter, you know, they're part of your your core readership, really, right? Yeah. Um, so hey, I have I have one more question I wanted to come back to. Sure. Um, yeah. You, you came at it from the side of, you know, being lucky that you had a college professor who actually liked science fiction and was a Nebula award <laughs> winner, right? And yeah, yeah. So I wanted to ask you, why why is science fiction still relevant or why should it be? Um, ooh, that's a good one. Um I think I think fundamentally that science fiction is uh, it, it, it's modern mythology, right? We, we've fallen mm. out of touch with a lot of our more traditional stories, right? Like people don't know about, um, people are not deeply invested in, in stories about Greek and, and Roman myths. They're not invested in like the lives of the saints, the sort of medieval folk legends. Um, people tend to think that there weren't even any, right? That the dark ages were dark and there wasn't a lot of culture there, which mm-hmm. is completely wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've lost a lot of those, uh, those deeper foundations, these older stories. And I think that to the degree that science is like our magic right now, right? And our belief in science, uh, in sciences, you know, you know, and, and demonstrated ability to make mm-hmm. the world better, um, that stories of adventure that uh, you know, uh, with science as an element, right, um, are, you know, modern fantasies, right? Because I, I do think science fiction fundamentally is 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 a form of fantasy. Mm. It's not like War of the Worlds came true um, or Star Trek did. Uh, 2001 is 20 years ago now, like that we didn't go to Jupiter and I'm very sad about it. Yeah. Um, you know, but these are, these are our myths and they still keep people moving forward, even if the, the future's that the science fiction writers predict never come true, and they never have, right? Um, people like to, you know, point at Star Trek and the communicator as a as a precursor to the cell phone, but mm-hmm. we've moved so far beyond the Star Trek communicator in terms of what we can do with our smartphones right. that Star Trek's not prophetic anymore. It's it's hopelessly outdated. Um, but it's kind those of like stories, at this point, <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, you know, it still gets people dreaming about what the world could be mm. or should be or even had been like. Because a lot of science fiction is about the past, too, mm-hmm. right? Um, the stuff that I'm writing is hugely grounded in uh, political tropes and moments of, like, the, the third century, right? Just because I thought doing a version of, like, the Hunnic invasions with aliens would be fun, mm. Um you know, but it keeps people dreaming about different things. And I think that we need to dream 
um, in some form or other. And if people aren't doing it in sort of traditional myths in, in religious stories and things like that, then doing it in the form of an adventure story about Martians and robots is, you know, like, you know, that's still, that's good. Let's do that. Um, if that's what we, if that's what we're going to do, uh, because the world needs, you know, needs stories. Um, if we're going to figure out where to go, we, we, or the oldest stories are like, you know, warnings about tigers and, and the elements and things that our ancestors were dealing with. And the stories we're writing are still warnings about, you know, abstract, hypothetical concerns. But they are things that we need to be concerned about. Um, and so we tell stories not just to be entertained, but to map our environment. Right. So there's some mixture of cautionary notes and hopeful yeah but it just helps us figure out what the world is shaped like right like the psychological landscape of our own reality and that's what myths do too right you know people Mm -hmm. like to talk about like little fables literally have morals right yeah Uh, and so do so do greek myths right the the golden touch story right with uh, midas is about uh you know the dangers of pursuing material wealth and how it, it literally you know reduces everyone around him to to you know, financial figures, right? They turn to gold, right? Mm-hmm. Everything in his, Midas's world becomes a, a question of wealth and value. Uh, and that's not a life that anyone wants to live. Yeah. Um, and you, you, you mentioned that, and I'm thinking of a little passage I read in your book, which kind of stated the theme, right? Which is this idea of the empire of silence. And there was a clear statement of what silence meant to the main character, Right. Oh, yeah. This is really early in the book, right? Or um, yeah, 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 yeah. First act. Yeah, it has a couple of meanings. One of them is right a, a responsibility to speak, um, speak out, right, uh, and not to be quiet because, um, you know, sometimes you have to do that, right? Yeah. Um, there's a deep tradition of the word, right, in in Western civilization as the force that you know created the world if you're a you know practicing christian for instance but the idea of of logos as this force of reason that that helps to reshape things Mm. as the opposite of silence but at the same time there'll be a a, a later meaning for for what the empire of silence is to hadrian and in his universe Mm. um that has that that reasserts the um you know the 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 deeper quiet of the universe right And, and um and I mean, you mentioned for... people's the, the the silence within people's souls. An interesting, yeah. Statement. Um, Was that yeah. the author voice coming out there? Yeah, a little bit. There's um, people I think make so much noise right in their lives. Like like, well, when was the last time you sat in a room by yourself and did nothing? Hmm. It's it's not comfortable. Yeah. Um, to be alone with yourself. I think Louis C.K. of all people pointed this out in one of his stand-up routines that like people just don't do that because it's hard. Yeah. Um, and you know, well, you know, the fool in, in middle ages is the person who always spoke the truth to the king. And that's what our comedians do for us sometimes. And, um, and, and that really bothers me. Um, because I, I, and I try to do that a lot is just sit with myself and, and, Mm. and, my uh and my feelings because of course that's part of what writing is mm-hmm. um but a lot of people don't do that and i think that if there was at the same time more listening mm. um and less talking even listening just to ourselves mm. um and to the you know the things deeper things higher if you're so inclined mm-hmm. that things would be a little bit better because while we put a lot of emphasis on speaking and on the breaking of silence sometimes the maintenance of it is as curative um and 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 good for the world and that i think is something that our culture has completely forgotten about and so mm. there's a little bit of that motif going on as well um with uh, yeah. with hadrian in 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 that sort of idea um, i like that concept of recognizing that um for people who want to know more about you how can they do that uh well i am on facebook and twitter at uh the rockio t-h-e-r-u-o-c-c-h-i-o believe it or not someone already had just rockio what um i uh, i've got a, a youtube channel i just started as well where i talk about the books and about writing to a certain degree cool. uh that's just under uh the sun eater which is the name of the series because my name is hard to spell <laughs> uh and uh, I, I've also got a website at solanempire.com, S-O-L-L-A-N, empire, 
Mm-hmm. My newsletter is set up through there and everything. So if you want to check things out, that'd be the place to do it. Cool. Well, Christopher, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Likewise. Thank you for having me. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Fearless Storyteller. As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover the Fearless Storyteller podcast.